0: Welcome to the Master's in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and to hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a master's degree in psychology or related field. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we have the privilege of talking with Gabrielle Ferreira. After graduating from Morristown High School, Gabrielle attended University of Miami where she received her BA in psychology and criminology. She then attended Rutgers University, where she received her master's degree in clinical social work with an emphasis in mental and behavioral health. Gabrielle served as a mental health counselor, and she did her internship at the Immediate Care Psychiatric Center in Parsippany, New Jersey. Gabrielle is a licensed social worker and currently works at the Counseling Center in Middlesex, New Jersey as a substance use and mental health therapist. Gabrielle, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thanks Brad, I'm happy to be here. Um, My name is Gabrielle Ferrara, and I'm really honored to be on your podcast today. So thank you for having me.
0: Well, you're welcome. Thank you for being on the podcast. I, I know that a lot of our listeners are gonna get a lot from you today. You have a lot of things going on, especially in the last six months. I mean, you've you've graduated with your master's degree. You started a new job. You got engaged. Congratulations.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: And you actually have your first blog post on psychology today. So a lot of exciting things in the last six months.
1: Yeah, it's been an exciting time.
0: So let's go ahead and get right into it. I kind of wanted to open up the floor for you and, and ask you, tell me a little bit more about yourself other than what that introduction, you know what I did with uh, the introduction for all of our audience members.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you covered it pretty well in the introduction, but I'm from New Jersey, born and raised. I'm currently still living where I grew up in Marstown, um, just getting into the field of social work and starting my my career. In my free time, I, I have a adorable little rescue dog that keeps me busy and keeps me on my toes. So yeah, I mean, I just am really happy to be here talking about my experience and my writing and um, my my career at this point.
0: Well, good, good. I, how did you actually decide to uh, get your Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and Criminology? What made you decide to go that route?
1: So it's actually a funny story. I started college as a pre-med neuroscience major. And then I realized that there was a lot of science and math involved in that, that I was not interested in. So I, but I still really had a passion for mental health and the brain and all that stuff. So the next logical step seemed to go into, seemed to be to go into psychology. So I switched my major to psychology and began taking some courses and saw that there was an overlap between mental health and the criminal justice system and some of those common themes among the two fields, and so I added a criminology degree as well and kind of combined the two and got to see some of the overlap and it was an incredible combination of studies and field work and just a really good overall experience.
0: Yeah, and, you know, based on our uh, research on the website, we are seeing more of that overlap with criminology and psychology. More and more of those uh, psychologists are needed in the criminal justice system as well. So it's uh, interesting that you chose that route. Um, You know, the next follow-up question is what is, you know, at what point did you come up with the idea of becoming a therapist?
1: Yeah, so that is something that didn't stand out to me at first. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my psychology and criminology degree. I considered going into the FBI, I have some sort of police criminal justice work. And then I ultimately settled, not settled, I mean, settled is not the right word, but I made the decision to be a therapist and go into clinical work based on my own experience in therapy. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit later, but my own experience in therapy and My good and bad experiences with different therapists really motivated me to want to give back and to be that person for someone else because I've had very good therapists and not so great therapists over the years. And that just kind of comes with the territory, but it really motivated me to want to continue studying psychology, understanding it, understanding people, and being that person for others to connect with.
0: Well, that's, that's actually interesting now that you brought that up. If you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen, and mm-hmm. I'm going to share one thing with uh, you and the audience. And um, I, I liked your tagline here, and you should see uh, the Psychology Today website here. And here's your most recent blog post, uh, why showing emotion is, as a therapist is okay sometimes. And if you notice on the left side, your tag is Gabrielle Ferreira a therapist who sees a therapist. Tell us a little bit more about that and how you came up with that idea.
1: Yeah, so I actually got that idea from a book I read earlier this year. I think it might have been um, late last year, actually, and it was a book by Lori Gottlieb. She's a psychotherapist and an author and also a, a speaker, and she has a memoir called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, And in that memoir, she talks about her own experience as a therapist and also her time that she spent going to therapy. And that book really resonated with me. And it was the first time that I had connected so deeply with a therapist who also goes to therapy themselves. And I I knew that a lot of therapists go to therapy and it's something that we're encouraged to do in grad school. But reading that book really made me feel like it was something normal and it was something not just normal, but an asset, it was a strength to be in therapy myself, and also be on the other side being in, in the, that helping position.
0: Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, it would add some credibility, and some mm-hmm. uh, credence, and, and you can share a little bit and actually, you know, relate with your clients as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Going through therapy yourself, do they ever ask you, hey, what are you going to therapy for? And do you share that? Or how do you handle that type of question?
1: I haven't gotten that question specifically. It's one of those things that I don't disclose. It, there's a kind of a gray area with self-disclosure in therapy. So obviously my writing is out there and if they, my clients Google me or anything like that, it's going to come up. So it's not something I'm hiding, but it's something that I don't bring up myself unless it's relevant or helpful or the clients bring it up. But as you can see through my um, internet presence in my writing, it's not something I'm, I'm hiding. So if it did come up, I would be I'd be reserved and make sure I'm protecting myself but also honest that you know I'm a human being I have things that I struggle with I have things that my therapist helps me get through and that makes us all just human beings it kind of levels the playing field so it's not me it doesn't put me on a pedestal above my client because I'm in a therapist role because I also have been on the other side of it so it kind of levels the playing field a little bit.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, d- I definitely agree. There has to be that fine line. You can relate mm-hmm. to them, share that you are also seeing a therapist, but at the same time, we're here to focus on you. Let's refocus it on on, on you and your needs. So right. uh, what, what kind of prompted you to come up with this idea to actually submit this to psychology today about uh, showing emotion?
1: So I had a, an, ex- an experience that I talk about briefly in this piece where a client was sharing something with me that really resonated for me. And on behalf of protecting myself and the client, I'm, I'm not gonna share the details, but the experience was something that I could relate with too. And something that hit home for me based on my own personal life. And I caught myself starting to tear up a little bit and, and it wasn't noticeable. I really don't think the client even noticed, but that's okay. It's That's not the important part here. But it led to a moment of self-reflection for me and a moment for me to say, okay, I'm having this reaction. I need to remember where I am. I need to remember my role and who I am and who I am to my client. But I can also accept that I'm a human being. I'm having a human reaction to something that my, my client was sharing. So the goal behind writing that article was to normalize that experience because I think Sometimes there's a misconception that therapists are meant to just be kind of, sto- not stoic, but um, they're not meant to show emotion or to show that their clients are affecting them. So I just wanted to normalize that experience. And it was a moment of self-compassion for me to allow myself to know that that's okay to feel that way. And it was also a moment to share that knowledge and share that self-reflection out in my writing.
0: And I, you know, I can kind of relate to that. My mom is a licensed psychologist herself, and I Mm -hmm. know kind of in the old days, and I'm going to ask you this, have you found talking with other people in the field that that used to be kind of the norm Is we don't talk about me as the therapist or the counselor, we focus everything on you. Now it's kind of blending and a little bit more forgiving. Hey, I can share some of my um, reactions and my thoughts with you but we still have that line. It might've been moved a little bit, but Mm -hmm. is that your uh, um, feeling as well?
1: Yeah, my whole kind of idea of therapy going into the field as a professional is that at the end of the day, the bulk of the work that's done in therapy is built out off of that human connection, built off of that mutual human experience. So if a therapist is not allowing themselves to, be human and to be just a natural person the there's not going to be any work that's done in the therapy room there's no intervention or theoretical model that can be applied effectively if the client does not feel that connection to their therapist and does not feel like there's a mutual sort of respect and understanding so at the end of the day I think that connection is most crucial so I I'm not afraid to kind of allow that to, to happen and allow that to transpire in the room
0: no, that's a good answer. I, I understand and appreciate that. Um, I think your clients definitely appreciate that uh, when they're talking with you as well. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's go back and circle back because I like talking about how did you consider going to graduate school and how did you mm-hmm. actually decide to go to Rutgers University?
1: Yeah, so I, when I finished my bachelor's degree, I was trying to figure out what to do next and where to go forward in the field of psychology and it became quite clear that it would be In my best interest to get a graduate degree, just in terms of the jobs that were available and the work that I wanted to do. Um, So I went through a different couple different options. There's obviously PhD programs. There's PsyD programs, so a doctorate in psychology, and then there's master's programs, so masters in clinical psychology, masters in social work. And I actually had a friend whose mom had recently graduated from the master's in social work program at Rutgers and highly recommended it, had a really good experience. So I looked into it a little bit more and just, there were some uh, benefits as well to moving home and living at home while I was completing that degree. So that factored into my decision as well. I was able to commute. So I looked into the program at Rutgers and it's one of the top programs in the country. I think it's. 17th in the country last I checked. Uh, Don't quote me on that, but it's definitely top 20 in the country. So it really just seemed all around like the best, the best option for me.
0: Yeah. And I understand what you were trying to say about uh, getting home because before that, correct me if I'm wrong, you were out in uh, Miami, out in Florida, Mm -hmm. University of Miami. So tell me about Mm -hmm. your, some of your experiences and do you have any fond memories of attending uh, the University of Miami?
1: I loved, yeah, I really loved the University of Miami. It was the first time I got away from New Jersey. I was, like I said, I was born and raised here. So there was some homesickness and anxiety that kind of comes with the territory. In hindsight, it was a great experience for me to explore that aspect of my mental health, kind of just anxiety and adjustment to new situations. But all in all, it was a fantastic experience at Miami. I had a couple of different Um, experiences out in the field there as well. I had an internship with the National Alliance on Mental Illness there, which was um, a really good experience for me. And of course, I made a lot of friends and connections and professors and things like that.
0: So, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the professors because one of my questions is, you know, can you think of anybody that had an influence in creating your career or your path, your career path? And and if so, (laughs) can you talk a little bit about that in terms of, how they influenced you, and and what was really crucial for you in making some uh, uh, decisions?
1: Yeah, so I could actually come at that from a couple different angles. Um, There was a professor I had a couple times. I took her classes repeatedly because she was a very good professor in my criminology courses, and she really kind of solidified my interest in that area. And then I had a professor for, I took a creative writing class, actually, when I was in in college, and it was through that creative writing class that I ended up writing my first piece that I published back in um, 2018. That piece was published on The Mighty, and I, that was the first time I'd ever publicly published something about my own experiences with mental health, so that piece was actually produced originally in that creative writing class at the University of Miami. So it was the first time I had the courage and the, the opportunity to write about that and that really snowballed the rest of my writing and I owe a lot of credit to that class.
0: Well, I'm glad that you brought up the Mighty, so a lot of your, the, your followers probably know what the Mighty is, but our audience mm-hmm. might not be aware of what the Mighty is, and you know, what I did is I, I did some research, obviously, and I saw that you have multiple blog posts and, and articles on the Mighty as well, going all the way back to 2018, and then some of them are more recent. Kind of in your own words, kind of describe what is the goal of the Mighty, and, and what is it used for, and, and how are you using it?
1: Yeah, the My- so the Mighty is a storytelling platform online. Um, it's it has a couple different elements to it. You can post what the, what they call thoughts, and those are kind of just thoughts to the community, and people can reply and offer support. And then you can also publish stories. So if you publish stories, there's a team of editors that review and select stories that they want published on the site, and that's kind of the more official. Um, formal form of writing that's on that site. So I've, um, I've had a little bit of experience with both, but primarily I focus on publishing those stories and working with the team of editors.
0: Well, you're being very successful and you have been uh, very successful on the Mighty. I'll I'll read one thing from the site itself. Uh, The Mighty is a site where people share their personal experiences with disability, disease, and mental illness. Uh, We'd love to hear your story. Tell us more about this. Uh, And then uh, I did notice that you have become a super contributor on the Mighty. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that mean?
1: So that just means I have, uh, it's a team of contributors that were selected based on how often we were writing and the topics we were writing about, and then also our credentials outside of the Mighty. So it's just a way for anyone reading my articles and the articles of any other super contributors to know that We have a little bit of credibility. We have a little bit of experience professionally and academically, and not that the other stories published are not credible, but we just kind of have a little bit more experience with writing and um, what we're writing about.
0: Yep. And I'll go ahead and share my screen. And you have two articles that I actually like to highlight here. And one of them is your favorite five-word phrase to use as a therapist. This is earlier in the year, uh, this year. (laughs) and without giving it uh, away uh what are those five words
1: so this was actually very uh so the phrase yeah you can see it right there tell me more about that
0: <laughs> yeah and so you know a lot of uh, a lot of counselors and therapists would uh love to read this and they probably agree with you or you know any derivative of that is basically mm-hmm. to you know at, you know help the client talk a little bit more and open themselves up but what made you come up with this idea of, of submitting this story to the mighty?
1: So I, I'm not the expert when I'm in the therapy, when I'm in the office, right? So I'm not the expert. I, I have the credentials. I have the degree and the, the work experience, but I'm not the expert. My client's the expert. And that's something that I really embody as a therapist. So when someone tells me I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling upset, it's, it would be very wrong and unhelpful for me to assume that what they're feeling upset about or what what even upset means to them. The definition of upset to them could be very different than my definition of upset. So by just saying that phrase, tell me more about that, it opens the floor for them to be the expert, for them to explain to me what that means to them, what kind of context it is. And it takes, it takes the the expertise and the, I guess the, yeah, it takes it away from me and it allows me to be the listener. It allows me to be the learner. And that gives a little bit of power and strength to the client.
0: Yes. Uh, and I like, um, uh, for those audience members, go ahead and look at that uh, article It's well-written and it actually gives a nice point of view that, uh, uh a lot of people are, uh, not really looking at in terms of, Hey, this is what is happening. And, um, I need to know more about that in order to help you as well, because if they're just clammed up, um, you can't really help uh, help them in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, you mentioned something about, uh, kind. Of, you know, the one of the biggest areas right now that I think more and more um, counselors, psychologists, and therapists are dealing with are, is obviously the impact of COVID um, on friends, family, work. Uh, I wanted to ask you, have you noticed any changes in the topics or presenting problems pre-COVID and then during COVID right now?
1: Yeah, of course. So I've had an interesting opportunity. So when I was pre-COVID, I was an intern and I was still in school and I was working with a much different population. I was working with children and adolescents mostly. And then when COVID happened, my field placement was stopped and I kind of had a little bit of an interim between school and my job that I'm currently at. And now I'm at, I'm in a job where the population's a little bit different. It's adults, um, it's mental health and substance use. So I've had a little bit of, I've seen a lot of different sides of how COVID has impacted um, clients, but currently, yes, I, I would agree. There's a lot of anxiety around COVID. There's a lot of anxiety around just the uncertainty. It's not necessarily the virus itself and the ins and outs of, the virus but the uncertainty about when will things be okay when will things go back to normal where am I going to be six months from now so that uncertainty is very anxiety inducing and I think you and I could could relate to that as well for sure
0: yes definitely I know that uh, I'm in Minnesota you're in New Jersey I didn't get a chance to look up um, your rates of uh, COVID Uh, have they been rising in your uh, state as well
1: yeah, unfortunately, I think I think they're rising here as well.
0: Um, I know that our governor has put, uh, two days ago actually, uh, put some more restrictions on uh, what's going to be open, what we can do. Uh, are you guys currently under any restrictions?
1: Yeah, I think we're going to um, have some new restrictions as well. I know Philadelphia, which is not far from us here in New Jersey, is having some new restrictions put in place. And I believe that um, Governor Murphy, who's our governor here, is going to follow in similar ways where we have a curfew on bars and restaurants here and there's definitely a lot of limitations in place
0: yes um you know i also noticed on the mighty uh in the middle of um, you know spring here you actually wrote a uh, letter to the covid19 frontline workers and i'll go ahead and share that and tell Mm -hmm. me a little bit about this and what prompted you to write this
1: so I read um, an article. I believe it was in the New York Times. I'm not sure, but um, it was talking about the ER doctor that, that you can see there, um, Dr. Breen. Um, she died by suicide in um, Manhattan, or she was working in a Manhattan hospital. And reading her story really, really struck me because here was this healthcare professional who was right on the front lines and was dedicated to her her patients and was just a phenomenal doctor, and by all accounts of her family, a phenomenal person, and she just couldn't bear the the pain that she was seeing and the, the terrible things that she was experiencing, and suicide is something that's very difficult for for people to talk about and kind of understand, but reading her story just really motivated me to want to be the person that these healthcare frontline professionals could come to and be that person that they could talk to and work work through what they were feeling so that it didn't become something common i did, i like we would i would hate to see it become something that where a lot of these healthcare professionals um, are struggling with these feelings but unfortunately i think that's the reality is that it's a very hard field to be in right now and it's causing a lot of anxiety and depression in these healthcare professionals so ultimately long story short i wanted to represent my willingness and my motivation to be that person that these people could talk to.
0: Yeah, and it also adds some uh, credence to, hey, you do care. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people might think that, hey, we have to be somewhat uh, Mm distanced in in the therapy or counseling session. In -hmm. actuality, it's fine to empathize Mm -hmm. and sympathize Mm -hmm. with your clients and and let them know, because as you said earlier, that uh, lends credibility and you can relate with the uh, uh, client more and and you gain respect and credibility. So Mm -hmm. I I like seeing all those and you've been very busy with a lot of those articles. And I'm gonna come back to that in a second, but I wanted to kind of resume talking about your schooling and how you decided to go to Rutgers and and Miami and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what were some of the most interesting courses? You already mentioned the criminology, Uh, Mm -hmm. the writing course. Any other courses uh, in your undergraduate or your graduate uh, curriculum that kind of stand out uh, to you now?
1: So the one of the classes that I really enjoyed when I was in Rutgers at um, my graduate program was um, a clinical assessment and diagnosis class. And so that class was really a deep dive into the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic uh, manual, for mental disorders. I I butchered the the full name, but the DSM-5 is the manual we use for diagnosing um, mental and behavioral health disorders. And so that course was just a really deep dive into that entire book. And we really explored all the different symptoms and the different criteria for the mental health disorders and also treatment. So we looked at different ways to treat each of the disorders. Um, And different forms of therapy medication all that stuff and that really gave me such a comprehensive view of the field of mental health and how to properly assess for different symptoms and different diagnoses and it really was the foundation I think for my my career going forward.
0: I think a lot of people look forward to those practical courses, Mm -hmm. you know, that are applicable to your job, your everyday Mm -hmm. job. And so Mm -hmm. uh, it's nice to hear that you really enjoyed that. Some people go on the academic route and then uh, there goes the the applied route on the counseling and the uh, therapy. And um, one of the questions that I'm looking at right now, which kind of lends itself to what you were just talking about, you you went to uh, obviously for your master's degree in social work. Do you have any advice um, to somebody who would be interested in getting their uh, master's degree in social work? And if so, what would that be?
1: I think one of my hesitations going into social work for my master's was I didn't have an undergraduate degree in social work. My undergraduate degree was in psychology and criminology, which is related. But I I had a fear that I was going to be behind in terms of social work because social work is a little bit different in the sense that it's more of a holistic view of mental health and public health and social justice. So it kind of involves all of those different components. And my fear was that I was gonna be behind or not adequately prepared and kind of um, compared to someone who had done undergraduate work in social work. And so I learned quickly that that is not the case. And the fact that I had had the experience I had was more than enough for me to fit in in the field of social work And I felt right away that that was the place I was meant to be. And that was the career path and academic path that I was meant to be on.
0: So how did you know that that was the career path? Because I could have asked something like, well, why didn't you just continue your, you know, same undergraduate in in psychology Mm -hmm. and criminology and continue that? How did you know that you wanted to go that way instead of just continuing your undergraduate?
1: So the the tagline for social work is um, person and environment, like PIE or PIE, person and environment. And that really stood out to me as a powerful tenant of social work because not only are you looking at the person and maybe their brain or mental health disorder, but you're looking at how did their environment contribute to this? How does their environment continue to impact how they're feeling and impact their relationships and their communication skills? And it's really a holistic view of the person rather than just looking at them as someone with a mental health disorder. It's looking at them as someone who's had these experiences and had these life changes. And this is the context of their mental health condition. And that's really something that social work focuses heavily on is the the big picture.
0: Mm -hmm. And so if we step back and actually take a big picture of what you've been doing, obviously you're you're, uh, very active on the social media sites. Acting uh, and sharing some of your roles and articles, um, tell us a little bit more about more of your experiences. With you know, you you did an internship uh, with the Immediate Care Psychiatric Center uh, in New Jersey. Tell us about your role and experiences there.
1: Mm-hmm. So that was an internship that was set up by Rutgers, which is another um, great thing to mention about Rutgers School of Social Work is that they set you up with your internships, and they do a very great job of connecting with local agencies and finding an internship that best suits your interests. So that's um, definitely something uh, great, great to know about Rutgers. But the internship specifically at immediate care psychiatric center, I was working at The I was working in their partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient program. So that's um, kind of a lower level of care than hospitalization. It's not a residential level of care, but it's still a pretty high level of care. And I was working with the children and adolescent populations, mainly mental and behavioral health issues, um, providing group therapy and individual therapy.
0: Okay. And how is that different? I mean, you, you in your current job that you got, I think at the end of June this year, mm-hmm. uh, your new job is actually at the counseling center. Uh, what are your roles there and how do they differ from what you were experiencing with the immediate care psychiatric center?
1: Mm-hmm. So the core difference, I mean, of course, I now I'm licensed and I'm able to kind of pro- provide that therapy um, from a licensed professional standpoint, um, I'm still getting great supervision. So my supervisor is great at my current job and I'm getting that supervision. But the main difference is that I do have a caseload of my own. I have a caseload that of clients that I see and that I'm their primary um, provider. And I'm also working with adults at this, at this current position. So I'm working with adults with mental health and substance use disorders. And the substance use is something that I hadn't had previous experience with, but something that I'm interested in and something that I'm learning about every day as I go. So it's, it's been a very rewarding experience and I'm learning every single day.
0: What's the most challenging part of your job?
1: I think the fact that I'm just, I'm learning every day and it's not that it's not, that's not a challenge necessarily. So challenging is hard because It's challenging, but the good kind of challenging where it like, it makes me want to be better and it makes me want to be a stronger social worker. It challenges me to continue to learn, to continue to educate myself, to continue to listen to my clients and learn from them. Because like we talked about before, they're the experts, not me. And so it's a challenge, but it's a, it's a good kind of challenge. It's a motivating challenge to continue to be learning and bettering myself and yeah, it can experiencing something new every single day.
0: And so, you know, for the audience members who are interested in becoming a therapist, counselor, or going into psychology, applied psychology in this type of uh, uh, arena, what are some of the most rewarding parts of your job?
1: It's, It's so rewarding for me to, again, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but be that point of human connection for people. Because unfortunately, this isn't always the case but sometimes a client does not have that human connection at home or in their social circle or at least not in the the full sense of what it is with a therapist like when you come to therapy the focus is on you you're the you're the primary focus of that hour or hour and a half whatever it is session and a lot of times people don't get that kind of one-on-one attention or empathy or understanding from the people around them. So it's incredibly rewarding to have that role and to be that person that clients feel they can connect with and confide in and and trust because it's not a given that they have that outside of my office.
0: Now, the other thing that uh, you you mentioned earlier is you're passionate about uh, many different areas and you're very active, like we said, on social media. One of the things that I noticed is on your birthday this year, you actually had a fundraiser for the International OCD Foundation. Tell me more about that foundation and why you created that fundraiser.
1: So the International OCD Foundation is a wonderful resource for anyone who is struggling with OCD or has a family member, a loved one that is. It's It has all kinds of information on support groups, therapists, just educational information. So definitely a great resource to check out. And I created the fundraiser specifically because of my own personal experience with OCD. I was um, diagnosed with OCD when I was in high school, though I'd been experiencing symptoms for much longer or much earlier than that. And that foundation and that cause is something that's very near and dear to my heart.
0: So I'm going to go ahead and share the screen one more time here. Well, maybe not one more time. (laughs) Yeah. And so I, I wanted to share on your Facebook, you, you obviously have, but, well, before we talk about that, obviously, if somebody looks at your Facebook, wonderful pictures of you and your fiance, you know, <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit more about, I, I know that you met him uh, in high school, actually. Yes. And you guys just got engaged, I think, October 17th of this year. Mm-hmm. So again, congratulations. Here's your little uh, minute or two to talk about your love and, and uh, tell us a little bit more about how that uh, came to be.
1: Yeah so um interestingly yeah as you mentioned we we met in high school we we were together briefly in high school and high school's tough right those those romances don't always uh, work out so great but so we we went our separate ways we went to separate colleges and long story short found our way back to each other a couple of years ago and have been together ever since and this is the as you're seeing the result of of that
0: Well good good and and I like your little caption here who would have thought Morristown High School would give me my forever? That's so, that's so sweet. So again, congratulations on that. Thank wonderful, you. Wonderful pictures here. Um, Thank you. Thank you. What does he think about your uh, aspiring career in counseling and therapy?
1: He's he's one of my biggest supports. I mean, a, a part, a, in addition to my family and my parents, of course, but one of my biggest supports and cheerleaders the whole, the whole way. Um, and even back in high school, I was just beginning to understand my diagnosis of OCD and what I was dealing with. And that was actually around the same time that we originally dated for the first time. And he was the biggest support for me trying to understand that diagnosis and trying to figure out the ins and outs of what I was dealing with and how I could cope with it. And I I just remember him being there at the very beginning when I was um, coming to terms with that diagnosis. So it's it's definitely been a a very rewarding road for both of us.
0: Well, good. And and now we'll kind of return to the transition why I brought this screen up. (laughs) Uh, For those of you who are not aware, OCD Awareness Week was this year during October uh, 11th to the 17th. And I'll kind of read something right from the website there. It's an international effort led by the International OCD Foundation to raise awareness and understanding about OCD and related disorders with the goal of helping more people get access to evidence-based treatment and resources. And so uh, I'm scrolling down, and right here is where you decided, hey, I wanted to share some of my stories. And I'm not going to share them on the screen, but I am going to share, with your permission, when we talked earlier, this first one here that kind of gives a little bit more background into it. And, you know, while people are reading that, you can kind of tell us what prompted you to actually share some of your own personal stories.
1: So I read that statistic, as you can see there, um, according to the International OCD Foundation, it takes an average of 14 to 17 years from the time OCD symptoms first appear for a person to receive appropriate treatment. And at first I was like 14 to 17 years, that seems insane. And at first I didn't think that that was my experience. And then I took a moment and I started thinking back to my childhood and early education and those experiences many years, not not many years ago but a significant amount of years ago. And I was like, wow, I I was exhibiting here and there um, over the years, signs of OCD or developing OCD. And I was able to trace it back to, yeah, 14 to 17 years ago was when my symptoms first appeared in some capacity or another. Obviously, they weren't necessarily distressing or impacting my life to the degree that they were when I was diagnosed, but they were there. The signs were there. And it really was just like boggled my mind that it really took 14 to 17 years for me to get that diagnosis and to ultimately enter treatment in a way that was effective and now I am in treatment. I'm in um, exposure and response prevention therapy which is kind of the gold standard treatment for OCD.
0: Okay and I did I didn't share on the screen uh, for privacy reasons but you're seeing some uh, comments to that post and a lot of your posting. A lot of people Mm -hmm. are relating to that and and realizing Mm -hmm. that yes they have had OCD for a longer period of time than they originally, you know, thought Mm -hmm. they were. And so Mm -hmm. um, have you had anybody else come to you offline and, and kind of uh, share their thoughts and their stories with you as a result of seeing your posts?
1: Yeah. And that's been one of the most rewarding parts about sharing my story is because obviously there's a huge degree of vulnerability that comes with sharing my story on social media. And it was something that I was hesitant to do for, for a while. Um, And the most rewarding part of ultimately doing that and sharing my story and being very vulnerable online is that people have reached out to me and said, thank you for sharing your story. I can completely relate. I didn't know anyone else felt this way. It's, it's so great for me to see that you've struggled with this as well, but you've made, you've made something out of it. You've made a career out of it. You've made a, an online presence out of it. You've, you've kind of changed it and morphed it into this positive thing. And that's been such a rewarding experience for me. And it really makes the vulnerability and kind of the hesitancy and anxiety about how my story will be perceived. It makes all of that worth it because I have felt the rewards of knowing that I'm helping people.
0: Yeah. And and not only that, but you said that your fiance is one of your biggest proponents of not only your career, but I didn't really ask, you know, did he, was he aware back in high school that you were kind of going through OCD? And then when did he kind of realize, or when did you share with him some of these stories?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, he was aware to some degree in high school, but of course we weren't as close um, back then. And over the years, as we get closer, I mean, he's witnessed some of my ups and downs with OCD because some of my struggles with it aren't necessarily visible, but some of them are. So over time he's he's started to see the the progression of my symptoms and some days are better than poor than others. and um, so he's actually been on on the front lines for lack of a better term of all of that. And so he's been so great in the sense of doing his own research on the disorder, doing his own research on how to help me, um, listening to me, and listening to, And sometimes the best thing he can do is not listen to me, which has kind of been a hard thing um, for both of us is sometimes OCD thrives on people reassuring you and thrives on that reassurance and that that understanding. And that's the worst thing you can do for someone struggling with OCD sometimes is to reassure them. And as someone who loves me, that's a very hard thing for him not to do. Uh, But that's been something that we've worked on together. And it, it is the best thing for me at the end of the day. So that's it's, it's definitely impacted our relationship, but ultimately in positive ways.
0: Have you had any clients that have presented that uh, problem OCD with you? Uh, and if so, uh, are you using that same type of therapy? Or are you licensed to do that? Or what are your thoughts on uh, if somebody if I came to you and I said, Hey, Gabrielle, I am doing this, this, and this, and I've been doing it for years, and then you helped me discover that, yeah, that that tends to be OCD, OCD behavior. Mm-hmm. What would you do, or have you uh, experienced that right now in your current role?
1: Mm-hmm. So one of the, the core tenets of social work is we have a code of ethics, and the code of ethics states that we're required, we we shouldn't be practicing outside of our competency, right? If, we, if we're outside of our competency, if we feel like it's outside of our abilities, it's the ethical thing to do to refer to another clinician. Um, so I'm very aware of that. And I'm very aware of my limitations right now at the point, at the point I'm at with my own OCD recovery, um, and how that impacts how I can help other clients with OCD. And so I think it's, important to be aware of those limitations because I know that there are certain things that I would not be prepared to handle, um, with a client, given my own, my own experiences and my own place in my recovery. So it's really been, um, a period of self-reflection a period of being mindful of where my limitations are, where I am and not, not kind of having that savior complex of, okay, I can definitely help this person. Like I'm, I'm the therapist. I can do it because, if I'm not at that place in my own recovery, it'd be very, it wouldn't be ethical or beneficial to anyone for me to to be their clinician.
0: Yeah, and you br- you brought up a good point that, uh, um, and, and I learned this from my mom years and years ago. Is you practice what you've been taught, and you mm-hmm. actually are licensed, and you know, in certain areas, you can't be the end all and be all to all your clients, right. but you can refer them to other specialists that uh, do handle that. Now, with that being uh, said. I know that you're currently uh, employed and working at the counseling center at Middlesex in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and they actually have nine different locations. Are you able to refer some of your clients to other, um, you know, therapists and counselors within that whole organization, within mm-hmm. those nine as well?
1: Yes, yes, that's um, one of the benefits. Is we are able to do that. I mean, of course, it's contingent on the patient's um, location and their convenience, Um, but we do offer telehealth. So that's always a good option. But yeah, it's it's really um, a good network of treatment centers in in close proximity. So if we're not the best fit for a client for one reason or another, we have that ability to refer them to someone within our agency.
0: Yeah. So hopefully you can see this on the screen. It's MiddlesexCounseling.com. And this is actually where you work. But I wanted Mm -hmm. to point out, as I mentioned, that there are nine locations. So on the right here, uh, you can see all the nine locations and they are relatively close in proximity. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of nice to have kind of that family of counselors and therapists available to everybody uh, under the counseling center to refer them to other people within the organization as well. So that's kind of nice to to have that uh, ability do you have any um short-term or long-term goals of expanding your treatment um what you can be licensed to treat and and tell me a little bit about that in terms of your goals for the future
1: yeah of course so i'm currently a licensed social worker so the next step is to get my clinical hours um so ultimately In a couple of years, I'm going to have my LCSW, which is my licensed clinical social worker license, and that will allow me to practice in different settings and more independently. But aside from that LCSW, I do hope to get to a point in my own recovery and my own experience with mental illness where I can focus on OCD treatment. I can become trained in exposure and response prevention therapy um, and be that more, profe- I can have those credentials and those licenses to, to treat OCD because I know, again, I know my competency. I know I'm not quite there yet. I know I'm not prepared for that yet, but I'm working on myself and I'm working on my own mental health diagnosis. And my goal is long-term is to get to a point where I can be trained in ERP and treat clients with OCD.
0: Okay. And you mentioned, you know, the, the LCSW. And uh, hours, how many hours is it going to take for you to, to receive that or achieve that?
1: Yeah, so it's 3,000 hours. So it's uh, roughly about, if, if you're working full time, it's two to two and a half years full time. Um, but there's some nuances there in terms of clinical hours versus non-clinical hours. Um, so and each state is different too. So that's that's for New Jersey specifically. But each state has different requirements and different steps to reach those hours so it's it's roughly three thousand supervised hours for new jersey
0: okay yeah and i was going to point that out for our audience i know that it's state by state and some states might require more or less Mm -hmm. and some require more supervision supervised Mm -hmm. hours versus non uh that sort of stuff so um it sounds like you you have a plan at least for the next two two and a half years to to reach that goal Any other kind of long-term goals uh, think about beyond this or any other specialties that you find interesting and and might uh, uh, try to get specialized in as well or certified in as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I still have a great interest in criminology and criminal psychology. So, and I don't think, I don't think there's much of an intersection between OCD treatment and criminal psychology. So ultimately it's going to kind of depend on what's available and what my, where my, which direction my interests go. But I do still have a very passionate interest in criminal psychology, and I would love to explore that a little bit more down the line. I might need some more education to, I, I, def, I shouldn't say I might, I definitely need some more education to pursue that, but that's something down the line that I'm still very interested in.
0: So if somebody were to come to you and they were in undergrad right now, and they wanted to get into therapy or counseling, what would be kind of the, the best two or three things that you could advise them on and, and recommend that they do?
1: Mm-hmm. Go to therapy yourself, even if it's just for a couple of sessions, feel what, it's, feel what it's like to be in that position, to be in the room, to be talking to someone. Um, it doesn't have to be something you do forever, but definitely do it a couple of times just to get a, a feel for it. That'd be my, my first piece of advice. Um, my second piece of advice... Hmm. don't put too much pressure on yourself. And by that, I mean, it's a very difficult field. You, you see a lot of terrible things happening. You're exposed to the public health issues, mental health issue, issues, social justice issues, because social work is really, like I said before, that holistic approach to, to wellness. So it's very easy to get caught up in sort of these, these things that are happening and these things that you're learning about and experiencing. And it's easy to bring work home when you're a social worker, when you're a therapist, it's very easy to bring those things home with you and to let them infiltrate your personal life. And it's something I'm still experiencing and still struggling with. And some days, again, some days are better than others, but it's important to be mindful from the very beginning that it's going to, it's very easy to bring those things home with you. So be mindful of that and be aware if it's starting to happen.
0: Very good advice. Um, the one thing that I did notice throughout the years um, is I oftentimes look up uh, the highest rate of burnout in which occupation and air traffic mm-hmm. controllers is, is almost always in the top three or five. <laughs> and then more recently um, you know, the COVID frontline workers are appearing up uh, in the top three or five and counseling and therapy and counselors and therapists and psychologists and even psychiatrists are, are you know, getting up in that uh, as well. So very good advice on don't bring it home. Uh, if you do, then uh, hopefully you can do something to get it off your, off your mind, off your chest, and and maybe you mm-hmm. have somebody to talk to, to get that out of uh, your system, but very good advice. Um, mm-hmm. I have some fun questions that I always ask my guests as well. Uh, okay. And w- one of them is, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory and why?
1: So I, I so I actually really like this question. Um, so I was thinking about this and there's a phrase in psychology and therapy um, called dialectics, dialectical statements. And there's a lot of ins and outs of defining that, but the, the core element to it is that two seemingly opposite things can be true at the same time. And that's something that's been very powerful for me personally, and also for my clients. And I try to, to include that in a lot of my sessions. And it could be something as simple as I'm happy and I'm sad. It could be, it's, it's those, those things that seem like opposites. And it's also those statements that we usually put the word but in between. And instead of putting the word but, the idea with dialectics is you change that to and. So it's rather than the, these two opposite things being mutually exclusive, they can both be true at the same time. And that's something that I love. I love talking about it. I love trying to apply it in my own thinking, in my own my own life, and I, I love, spreading that knowledge to my clients as well.
0: Now I'm going to embarrass myself, but uh, um, some uh, Schrodinger's. I I, I I am bringing that out because as soon as you said, "Hey, two things can exist at the same time." Uh, I, I think of, uh, maybe I'm uh, revealing what show I, I watch here, but uh, <laughs> Schrodinger's box is, is kind of what comes to mind with that as well. So it's kind of interesting you brought that up. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I liked about your article and going back to this article, uh, why showing emotion as a therapist is okay sometimes, you did talk uh, briefly about counter-transference mm-hmm. and kind of for our audience, kind of give kind of a summary of what that is and what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so countertransference is something that we're taught a lot about in school because it's basically when a the therapist is having an emotional reaction or emotional response to, or personal response to something that a client is sharing. And whether it's because of personal therapist's own personal experience, for example, if a client's explaining a divorce and something, Terrible their significant other did and the client themselves has been through divorce and starts to personalize that experience and kind of think of their own experience with divorce that's an example of countertransference, and there's millions of other examples. And we're kind of taught in school to be aware of to be very aware of countertransference, and be very aware when it starts to come up and seek supervision immediately and really talk through it because it can be harmful to the client if it goes unchecked and it can be harmful to us as well as therapists because there's something going on that we're not dealing with. We're not dealing with it appropriately in our own lives. But obviously the client comes first. And the most important thing is that it can be harmful to the client if it's not checked. And I think that it's important to remember that it's not necessarily, like the second you start to feel counter-transference, you shouldn't run for the hills and leave the client high and dry and be like, oh my God, I can't, I can't handle this because I'm feeling counter-transference it's not always a terrible thing. It's not always the worst thing. It's something that you should be mindful of and deal with and seek supervision for. But at the end of the day, it means that, again, you're having these human experiences too.
0: Thank you for explaining that. I know that it's always interesting. There are so many different uh, terms and, and mm-hmm. ideas in the field. Uh, another fun question that I always ask and and think about this recently, what is something new that you have learned recently, whether it's within your field or outside of your field, just anything that you've learned recently?
1: Mm -hmm. So this one was hard for me. I'm trying to think of something that I've, um, I've learned recently. And I feel like I'm learning so much. Like I said, every single day, I'm learning something new. So it's hard for me to, to pinpoint. And I have to be honest, I haven't pinpointed some one thing that I've learned new recently. This was a question I really struggled with. And I think that is a moment, again, for self-reflection for me. Because every time I kind of struggle with a question or struggle with a concept that's happening in my life, I self-reflect and I'm like, why is this difficult for me? And I think it's a it's a moment for self-reflection that I need to be more mindful of the individual things that I'm learning each day because it all is starting to blend together. And that's that's okay because it means I'm growing as a therapist and growing as a person and a young adult, but I'm not putting specific stock in each thing that i'm learning in each experience that i'm having so like i said before i'm learning something new every single day so my clients are teaching me about their experiences that they've had that i'm not a part of they're teaching me about their kids and their loved ones and their work and i'm learning about how all these systems are working and how they're working amid the pandemic and how they're working in New Jersey specifically and i'm just I, I have all this information coming at me that's wonderful but it's hard for me to pinpoint one thing that i've learned
0: well believe it or not you actually identified a few things that you learned <laughs> so that was good reflection on your part another fun one that i always ask is if you had time and money to complete one project or go on a trip what would you do
1: time and money i would hmm so I want to write a book one day. So that's something that's um, on my long-term, I guess it's a long-term goal that I have that I, I didn't mention is I want to write a book. And that requires a lot of time that I don't have right now at this point in my career, in my personal life. Um, so I would really love to devote a lot of time and, and money and resources to doing that. And if I had all the money and time in the world, <clears throat> I would go to Greece or the Caribbean or something and do it there and do it uh, in somewhere warm and sunny and really just embrace that opportunity.
0: Okay, well that sounds like a good goal. Uh, (laughs) I, 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 I can relate to you about having so much on your plate right now, and you're starting your career, and, and I'm glad you're off to a good start. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, within mm-hmm. the last six months, you have done four, five, six different things, and you're still working toward uh, that two, two and a half year goal with the LCSW, writing mm-hmm. a book, getting married. Um, have you guys, um, you know, set a date yet? Can I ask yes. that? Yes,
1: <laughs> yes, we have. We're um in June, June 2022, so we're going to wait a couple, about a year and a half and see if things settle down with the pandemic and not rush, but yeah. So June, 2022.
0: Well, there's another thing to look forward to as well. Yeah. Uh, And then uh, one other question before my final question is, um, you know, is there anything else that you'd like to bring up or discuss during this podcast that I haven't brought up for you? Hmm.
1: No, I think we covered a lot. I think we covered a lot of my interests, a lot of my experience, and I'm just really grateful for this opportunity because this is the first time I've had the opportunity to talk about all these things all at once. It's, I talked about school before, I have talked about my personal experience, my career, but this has been, I'm just really grateful for this opportunity to talk about all of it in the same context.
0: No, we are definitely grateful for having you on the podcast as well. Um, I know a lot of our audience members (coughs) are are thinking of becoming therapists or counselors and going into this field. And it's interesting that you've combined your undergrad and your graduate work and and have gone down this road as well. And I applaud you for uh, uh, taking the initiative to share some of your stories on your OCD as well. It's therapeutic to yourself to do that as well. Mm -hmm. And then it also allows you to relate to others in your life whether it's friends, family, and then outside of the social media family as well. So I I really want to thank you for taking the time to be on our show. I do wish you the best of luck. And um, I will probably keep in touch with you later on through social media as well, if you don't mind and and see how (laughs) you guys are doing.
1: Of course. No, thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks again for being on the show. Um, We will keep in touch. Have a great rest of the weekend and have a good uh, Thanksgiving.
1: Thanks, Brad. You too. All right. Thank you. Thank you
0: thanks for listening to the masters in psychology podcast if you want to learn more about our guests or listen to other podcasts you can visit our website mastersinpsychology.com where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.